0: Well, we examine it weekly. We just talk about it huh. biweekly. Yeah, it's secret. They <laughs> secretly examine it. Right. I always do my work. We just don't talk about it all the
1: time. <laughs> back to another special bonus exclusive interview on 1980s Now. Hey, we are an examination of the importance of 1980s pop culture and its influence today. And that's Mm -hmm. what we do on our regular show. This week, or this special episode, is is not any different. It's certainly connected to the 1980s. But before I tell you about that, I want to tell you that my name is Will. And joining me, as always, are my friends and co-hosts, Kat and John. Hello, guys. Hi, guys. Hey, hey, hey. So (laughs) this uh, connection to our usual podcast is looking at a particular item of pop culture from the 1980s, a little known product uh, known by the name of Super Mario Brothers 3. Of course, I joke (laughs) because (laughs) it was a massive success uh, for for the (laughs) Nintendo. uh, A little bit. Still fairly young Nintendo entertainment system, at least in in the United States. Um, Mm -hmm. Because our guest today is Elise Noor, author who wrote a book about the uh, video game, but more than that, because mm-hmm. I had the pleasure of reading the book and it, it goes beyond that because in the book, Elise partly tells about the history, the creation, uh, the design, the uh, the really smart way in which the game was put together. Uh, mm-hmm. Partly that, but equal parts talking about her own childhood growing up with this game and how she played it with her father and sort of how, now, now it sounds, sounds like I'm stretching, but just a little bit, mm-hmm. how this game and her relationship with her father via the game helped Put her together in a sense, mm-hmm. you know, at least mm-hmm. some aspects. So it yeah. bounces back and forth between the both of these. But I'm talking about the book called Super Mario Brothers 3 by our guest, Elise Noor. And we'll bring her out in just uh-huh. a moment. But before that, because Elise writes about how important the game was to her development and her relationship uh-huh. with her father, uh-huh. the aspect of her playing with her dad sort of struck me as, as curious because, you know, video games can be a, a communal experience where you're experiencing uh-huh. with other folks today online, back then in a family room. Or they could be something very solitary, you know, again. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was curious Mm -hmm. for you, for you guys, you know, sort of where it, uh, it was.
2: I had a kind of a multi-layer video game experience (laughs) because I, uh, we got an Atari 2600, Mm -hmm. you know, whenever, I I don't know if it was the year it came out, but at some point soon after. And there was a lot of excitement in the family about this. Like it showed up at Christmas And I'm not even sure I knew it existed like before it came to us. I wasn't (laughs) in tune with it that way, but it was super fun. And everybody kind of gave it a try, but then it really became the domain of my sister and I, we were just Mm -hmm. about two years apart. Mm -hmm. And I don't really remember any, my parents playing it, like maybe they tried it when we first got it. Right. But, But friends would play when they come over or some cousins. And then- uh, my brother was born in 1982, so I was already 11 years old. We weren't really using the Atari that much anymore. Mm-hmm. And when he, I forget how old he was, uh, he got a Nintendo when he, I don't know, whatever year that came out, John, you mm-hmm. would <laughs> be a good one to tell me that. 85, um, I think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I mean, maybe not yeah. when he was three, <laughs> but at some mm-hmm. point yeah. he got a Nintendo and it was this whole new wave of video game and that he he was really really into this was his life, and he was always dragging the rest of <laughs> us into it. And of course, I was on board. I enjoyed video games, and he um, he always wanted a buddy. So I'd play Mario with him. I absolutely <laughs> played Mario. Um, Bubble Bobble was another oh. one that my mom even played. Yeah, I love yeah.
0: Bubble Bobble. Yes. Yeah, it's
2: I I even remember the music, it stuck in my head and, um, and Tetris, I guess he, I think, you know, that yeah, must've sure. been a, yeah. a thing. Um, but he, this is, he always called me in. I was his, uh, his ringer for Final Fantasy for doing the tile puzzle that earned you more money or got <laughs> oh, th- you.
0: Things that he couldn't well, accomplish. He brought he you in, handed you the controller. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Can yeah. TV come be playing? do the thing.
2: that's how it was i i didn't play any other part of the game he'd be doing his thing and then he'd call me i come in and do the puzzle for (laughs) him and but also you know what he loved having people watch him play Mm -hmm. which was not as fun for me (laughs) right Mm -hmm. but so i would say my experience um
0: it was definitely shared. It was it was more of a sibling
2: thing, mm-hmm. yeah. not not so much a, a whole family
0: thing, though. No. I grew up an only child. I had older siblings, half siblings, but mm-hmm. when I during my formative years, they didn't live with us. So yeah. over on Gen X Grown Up, I have told the story several times, I think. But effectively, I wanted an Atari, but it was expensive, and so mm-hmm. I got Tele Games Pong instead. Mm-hmm. And so I played it with my dad as much as I could, and got him hooked. Just I mean, within a week or so, and then I'm like, "Isn't this great?" Well, the Atari thing I wanted has lots of different games, and it's in color, and you can play with each other. You can do this, you can do this, and I effectively talked him into putting it back in the box, returning it to Sears. Wow! Getting the Atari, and then I had upgraded by it was the the TeleGames Pong was a gateway into the Atari, but then once I had it. I don't remember my parents getting involved beyond that. He played some when he first Uh got it. He's like, you're right. It is better, but he wasn't a game player, you know? So, so the social aspect of, of games at home for me was with, with friends and not even necessarily playing at the same time as friends, but cartridges became currency. Like you, mm. you you smuggle them in your backpack to school and you right. you trade them out, either just huh. loners or I don't want this anymore, you take it kind of thing. And then you would see who could beat what, since there's no internet. You know, when you first find out about the Easter egg and Adventure, you're like, <laughs> how did you do it? Well, you, it's It becomes this cultural thing that mm-hmm. you you become part of a secret club. But beyond the Atari at home, I think for a long time, video gaming for me was very... Solitary. I liked to go to the arcades, but my mom would drop me off there while she was shopping, and then come pick me up when I was she was done. And yeah. then when I was old enough to drive, I would go by myself, and nobody else was with me because I could entertain myself. But when it when it when it is social, it's it amplifies it. It you can a bad yeah. game becomes good if you have the right person to play with. So
2: oh yeah, right on. <laughs> yeah.
0: Not the Super Mario Brothers three was a bad game by any stretch.
2: No, no but being able to play all. it with yeah.
0: somebody else is. It can elevate it to, it has nothing to do with the game. It's now the interaction with the other person and, you know, yeah. the trash talk and the razzing and knocking the controller out of their hand, all that good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you know, fair play. Yeah, of course. Yes, of course. It's all fair. I guess taking a step back, you know,
1: the NES, as you pointed out, it actually, it actually came out in 1985, as John pointed out. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, Super Mario Brothers 3 didn't come out until 1990 in the U.S. It came out in the 80s mm-hmm. in, in, in Japan.
0: But mm-hmm. so by that called time- something else too, wasn't it? It was called something else in Japan before it got rebranded to SMB3, I well, think. Well, they did Ish. reskin like
1: a, I know Super Mario Bros. Mm-hmm. 2 specifically was like a reskin something in Japan. Okay. And they reskin something else for the
0: US. That's what it was. Then, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. There's
1: yeah, something to that. I think Super Mario Bros. 3 though, they, by then, again, I learned this in Lisa's book, they realized they had to make it more like Super Mario Bros. 1, not just, you yeah. know, reskin <laughs> yeah. something. Sure. But it came out- that game itself, you know, at least, at least praises it. And, and I can, she gives so much detail explaining why it's a great game that I'm convinced, even though I didn't really play it very <laughs> much myself. Cause I was mm-hmm. too old by then. I wasn't too. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. yeah, yeah I was in
0: college. Yeah.
1: And music. But so, so much like you guys, uh, the, the, we had an odyssey when I was a kid. That was the first game oh, we had. Nice. And I've said this before, co- our family was broke. So I don't know where these things came from or how my dad got <laughs> money for them. I know <laughs> same. he was yeah. going to college on the GI bill. So I guess he saved money there, but he, and he also had okay. a job and my mother had like three mm-hmm. jobs, mm-hmm. but we had that, that was our thing. And so my dad was always into electronics. Um, mm-hmm. So when Atari came out, we had one, you know, we were one of the first families to have one because my dad, again, I don't know how they scrimped and saved the money to do it. Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, just like you guys, shortly thereafter, I remember playing maybe tank a few times with them or, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, or, uh, the outlaw, something that was, uh, you know, a one-on-one kind of game,
2: (laughs) but then very quickly
1: it just became sort of my thing that I would do, you know, with my friends or by myself. But, um, I guess my fondest memories, and I had similar ones to you, John, with regard to changing, switching games or uh, Mm -hmm. exchanging games with friends. Or I remember, I don't know, my, my friend, I think he got Atari age or something like where the mm-hmm. Easter egg was written about, I think. Uh, I think uh, that's how he learned it. And then he brought that to oh, school. Yeah. And then we went to my house like right after class and tried to do it, you know, and did it. Um, mm-hmm. But but beyond that, my fondest memories are solitary, are playing yeah. adventure, you know, Christmas Eve, putting it in and just staying awake until I, you know, played all the levels. Uh, Same thing with Pitfall 2. I don't know how long that took, but just I'm going to
2: finish this game. Uh, I'm thinking of you with the sword you thought was an arrow. Yeah, you could still kill the dragons
1: with the arrow, though, Cat doesn't matter. Uh, Gotcha, duck. Raiders. You know, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I don't remember playing any of those games with friends. But I remember being captivated by the, you know, adventure of these games. Mm -hmm. You know, just from reading the manual, looking at the picture... I, I, being by myself on these adventures, that was mm-hmm. enough. I yeah. could
2: have sat, I sat for hours playing Missile Command one time. Yeah. yeah. And, and Night Driver. I, I loved
0: Night oh, Driver. yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. my! Like, I like, I just,
0: yeah. <laughs> I think, I don't know if you had the same experience, but I think my parents, and my mom was very young. I, I, she had me when she was 18. But yeah, even my mom too. 18 years of difference, being that much older than me, uh, mm-hmm. that little amount older than me, like her generation did not have any enough interest in or tolerance for, I don't want to say they didn't have imagination. They didn't have imagination available to apply to video games, right? They they understood literature and they understood film and they understood music. But this was a whole new thing that was alien to them. To us, it was part of us being born and brought into the world. yeah. Um, you know the the guitar existed i was what uh is 8 years old when that thing appeared i was just That's becoming right. a person that could actually think for myself <laughs> and here's this thing now in my room that is this i'm single child you know here's a friend here's a brother here's a sister that wants to play with me all the time yeah and it will play back and it has challenge and it's in. Yeah. It almost sounds like melancholy, like I had a terrible childhood. I had a wonderful childhood, <laughs> mm-hmm. but that mm-hmm. was, that was my sibling. That was my friend when I didn't have a friend to play with or whatever. And so it becomes, I think that's why it's still so important to me today when I'm 50 something years old, because mm-hmm. it was such a huge yeah. part of my life growing yeah. up.
1: And, and Elise, look, great. In, in her book, you should definitely check it out. So much of the game that she connects and relates to these different moments in her mm-hmm. life and development. She started when she was four. Her dad put the, the, the Nintendo controller in her hand and started teaching her how <laughs> to play Super Mario Brothers 3. Wow. Uh, she, t- she tells a really charming story about how at this age, after she was told to go to bed, she would sneak down and sit on the stairs and watch him playing in the reflection of a picture <laughs> on the wall on oh, wow. the stairs. Just to see Aww. the image. Yeah. Wow. Oh my God. You know, but, but, but video games were things that helped her bond with her dad. She learned life lessons and philosophy via these video games mm-hmm. and him. It saw wow. her through her parents' divorce. It was so meaningful to her and the book itself, again, if you love the game, you're, mm-hmm. you're going to love the book because there's so much insight into it. If you just love stories, you're going to like it because it's very charming mm-hmm. about, uh, you know, the, again, the connections that she made and had uh, through this book that to this day informed the person that she is. Yeah, you know? it sounds
2: like I could like the book without necessarily <laughs> knowing much mm-hmm. about the game or ever having played like it. Like I said, yeah. I
1: didn't really play it very much yeah. uh, because I yep. sort of was old at that time. Yeah. But I really enjoyed the book. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah. With that, hey, let's uh, bring out Elise and chat with her. Mm-hmm. In a moment, we'll be joined by our guest, author of Super Mario Brothers Three, Elise Noor. Guest today is an associate professor of English at Regis University, co-editor of Switchback Books, and the co-producer of Sweet Bitter podcast. Her book of poems, Mega City Redux, won the 2016 Green Mountains Review Poetry Prize. Just she just obliterated my entry. All right, I didn't really enter. Additionally, our guest's work has appeared in a number of publications, including The New Republic, Poetry Magazine, The Georgia Review, and many others. Last year, we were treated to the publication of her book about one of my favorite video games of all time, GoldenEye. You should check that book out. But today, she joins us to chat about the historical and personal importance of Super Mario Brothers 3, which is chronicled in her book of the same name. It's available everywhere books are sold, but you can support a local bookstore by making your purchase on bookshop.org. Please welcome to the show, Elise Knorr. Hey, Elise. Hey, how- yeah. I'm great. Uh, hey, thanks for so much for speaking to us today. As you know, maybe you don't know, you may not know. I know you said you were a fan of the show, but I'm gonna, you know, most people that come on the show, honestly, they don't listen to the show, and that's fine. That's <laughs> fine. I really don't care. But um, we are big fans of retro video games here, much like yourself, and so we really thoroughly appreciate being able to speak speak to you speak to you today about. Look, we know most recently you've written about uh, you've written about a number of video games, but certainly today we, we, you come to us to speak about Super Mario Brothers Three, and I think there's a whole realm of things that sort of you know surround it and involve it that we can Absolutely. talk
3: about as well. I'm excited. I think
1: look for folks who are fans of Super Mario Brothers Three, definitely read the book. But I think the thing that was most surprising and wonderful and uh, exciting for me was that it's just not about that video game. It's right. partly that and partly. Uh, a personal sort of, uh, you know, exploration, I suppose.
3: Yeah, there's there's a good bit of memoir woven in there. That's one thing that I've always really appreciated about that publisher Boss Fight Books mm-hmm. that, that did that book is that they have books about classic video games, but they're not limited to history. They also do um, cultural analysis. They do bits of memoir and just like what games have meant to people mm-hmm. in their own personal lives and in their communities. Uh, Cause games, that's why we play them. They touch us and they, they matter to us in a, in a really emotional way. And so it's a, it's a wonderful thing to get to marry some journalism with some uh, analysis, with some uh, memoir based writing and put it all together.
1: So before you actually started writing the book or, or to what extent, I suppose, before you wrote the book, did you appreciate how many life lessons you had extrapolated from video games?
3: That's a great question. Yeah. So the the first chapter of the book is all about how my dad and I played Mario when I was a little kid. It's the first game I ever played. And I was four years old. He'd sit me on his lap and we'd play Mario three. And it sort of was a great place for him to teach me some of his key life lessons, like never give up and always try your best. Um, and so I I sort of was aware of that. I think that later on in the book, when I talk about how Mario and rescuing the princess was a sort of early sign that I was gay and that I I, I liked rescuing damsels in distress for a reason more than just getting points and winning games, um, that that sort of came out a little bit more in the writing process oh. for me, and um, that's that's the beauty of writing, right? You get to right. learn more things about things you love and about yourself,
1: right? Yeah, it's really wonderful how, again, interwoven in the story, it seems almost even handed as far as here's some history about the game uh, and some of the, you know, sort of breakthroughs that they had. And here's some about me and my relationship with my father, my brother, my family. It also
3: became a space to sort of talk about the history of gaming um, at this crucial moment as the 80s transitioned into the 90s. Just like what, you know, between Atari crash and um, and Super Mario Brothers 3, what what happened that created the environment in which the game was released? Yeah, um, it's fascinating time in game history.
1: Yeah. Speaking of that, I suppose. Uh, yeah. 1983, uh, video games are dead. Long live video games, essentially right. what we've had. <laughs> How is it that uh, in 1985, when the NES comes out, folks love video games again? I heard they were dead.
3: Yeah, it was a lot of really hard work on Nintendo's part. Yeah. So they were a Japanese company. They'd been around since 1885. So they had a long That's history really nice. of... Yeah, they made playing cards and then they made a bunch of other wild things. They made instant soup, they made hourly hotels and all kinds of bad toys. But they survived all this time. So they're survivors. So they were doing really well in Japan. Video games were huge still. There was no video game crash in Japan. And so they decided we're going to go to America and we're going to release our Famicom entertainment system in America. They went to their first consumer electronics show and people were so convinced the video games were a fad that was dead, like the hula hoop. And they actually pointed and laughed at Nintendo. <laughs> they were like, "Good luck, guys. That's, uh, that's, that ship has sailed." Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Nintendo tried a couple clever things. Uh, first, they they tried to disguise the Nintendo. Um, but their, their console, the Famicom, as the Nintendo Entertainment System, they, they changed it from red and white, brightly right. colored kids toys, sort of gray <laughs> box like it's, a, it's just a VCR, nothing to see here. Definitely no. not a video game. No. That didn't work. So then they went even harder into the other direction and really marketed it in toy stores in New York. Um, they had their Nintendo of America employees going store by store and setting up the displays themselves um they had uh, a little robot toy they set up so they they really kind of emphasized this isn't a video game it's a toy and of course they had super mario brothers shigeru miyamoto's first masterpiece of many the first um mario game for the nes and that is what sold the nes it was the software the people who wanted to play that game so much they had heard so- that word of mouth spread like crazy and um, in many ways, maybe Nintendo sort of revived the the video game industry as a whole and and kicked it off in America all over again after that Atari crash.
1: Yeah, it is. Uh, I guess curious to me that in just that short period of time, you know, part of what we understand about the crash was this: we were inundated with poor quality video games right. for Atari, and yeah. there's no quality control and that sort of yeah.
3: thing.
1: Uh But or too many games. Yeah. That just a few years later, that I guess even that said, that sounds like a market problem. I don't know that folks were necessarily bored of video games or didn't want video games. I mean, obviously the sales right. went down, but
3: I mean, there was definitely some hubris involved with, with Atari, right. At, at one point um, I think you've covered this on your show, but they were, they were selling more game, more copies of games than there were consoles in existence. Right. And the Atari exec was saying, well, you know, people might just like to have another one or like, it, it didn't yeah. even make sense. So it was some poor business decisions and some hubris um, but the ways that Nintendo responded sort of might point to what some of the original symptoms were. So Nintendo, they were really really big on quality control in America in the 80s. They had that Nintendo seal of approval that they put on all their boxes so that people would just get the idea visually that okay, somebody's looked this over this you know is just a pure marketing strategy that we care about quality. They also changed the graphic art and I know that there's like there's a huge appeal of those Atari, game cartridge art they Mm -hmm. they look so magical and i mean they're they're beautiful like paintings but they they sort of nintendo thought they let they let people feeling disappointed when they put the game in because you see these like these burly athletic men playing a really rigorous game of tennis and then you put in the cartridge and it's pong and it's two rectangles and a dot (laughs) and so they've kind of felt like maybe the the um the realistic game art was overselling what was in the box. So you'll notice in the earliest games, in the earliest NES game cartridges, mm-hmm. it's all pixel art. So you actually just see right. what Mario actually looks like in the game. So they tried to be more honest about what they were selling. Um, and they did have a very rigorous internal quality control system. They focused on fewer games at a time that had more replayability and were more addicting. Um, and so a lot of you know business scholars and game scholars say, you know, clearly that that worked.
1: Yeah. You know, I take issue with Nintendo suggesting that Atari was misleading people. I've talked about this before, and I think it depends what age it hits you at. Now, you were young when, you know, your dad had the Nintendo and you were only seven when you got your Super Nintendo. Yeah. I was around that age when I got my 2600. Okay. So for me, that art it filled in all the things that the pixels didn't, you know, like, I love it. like adventure, I love it. the picture of the dragon and all that. I had oh. that spirit in me when I would move a little square around. It
3: mm-hmm. It was yeah. enough. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's some big conversations about sort of um, even within a game, like abstract representation versus um, realistic re- representation. So in Super Mario three, in a lot of the desert world, they have very limited pixels, but they use the pixels to sort of evoke a pyramid for you or evoke a tomb and, get, and give you this feeling of dustiness with, with just like the, the limited tools and resources they have. And so in that way, you know, there's something really beautiful about the parallel between a kid's imagination extrapolating the world of their toys from the box art or from their own imagination, um, all the way up to the work that game designers do to um yeah. to to build with such limited resources. Yeah.
1: And you you mentioned something uh, a little bit that I found fascinating that I learned in your book was that this is aff- a That Atari, is what Atari was doing, as we know, easy, easy enough, I suppose the concept was, let's just adapt or port games from the arcade that we made that were successful to the home and other games. So for them, there wasn't a lot of, there weren't any really, except for the changes that were, that were made for the home console were due to limitations as far as the home console. And then the other games they made that didn't even exist in the arcade were similar in a sense. And one of them was that you, this idea that you could just play them forever. They just keep getting harder. Yeah. And Nintendo, as you suggested, saw a distinction to be made or a difference that they could capitalize on. What What is that?
3: So Nolan Bushnell of Atari, his golden rule for game design was that, you know, it should be easy to learn and hard to master. Right. And uh, this works really well for arcade games where, You want the game to be inviting enough that it looks fun for someone to go stick their quarters in it. And you want them to be able to learn it really easily so they'll go up and and feel like it's approachable. But then you want them to lose very quickly so that they have to keep feeding quarters in there. Right. Um, The harder the game is, this is why we call arcade games like old school hard, uh, the more money you make off of it. So it has to feel addicting, but really hard. So home consoles, though, you want it to. Be able to reward long, long playability sessions and have have someone finish the game and want to go right back and start it over again so that they'll be happy they purchased this home console and want to purchase future home consoles. Um, So Nintendo, you know, they really thought it were Shigeru Miyamoto, the designer of Mario. He really thought about that flow state of when something is just hard enough that it's challenging and interesting, but definitely still doable and can get you into that into that flow state. So he ramps up the difficulty slowly over time. There's in-game tutorials for all the mechanics, so it feels inviting, but in a sort of fluid, um, organic way. Right. And there's also lots of different reward systems within the game, which make it addicting and replayable. There's a point system, there's uh, secrets, there's secret areas to explore and and extra things you can do within the game. Um. So, so that really added to that replayability factor, too. And I think it's one of the reasons that, to this day, Nintendo sort of lets software lead and hardware follow, and they really... Um, the the few times in their history that they've deviated from that, it's gone really badly for them. So they're, they're a software based company.
1: Right. Yeah. And and you you mentioned how the in-game tutorial, and just to be clear for folks who may not know, I mean... You didn't have to read an instruction manual. And let's face it, and with right. the 2600, no one really read those manuals.
3: I did. Christmas Eve, I'm, pay- I'm beginning to end. I love the end. manuals too. Right? I loved reading them. I would read them like at bedtime. I, I, I loved everything yes, about them. absolutely.
1: And I had the patience to wait. Okay, now I've read all six pages. Ooh, yeah, now let's yeah. play. You know, drive my family yeah. and friends crazy.
3: Come on, just play it. I know, I'm really fighting the impulse to do that with Starfield right now because oh. it's so massive. <laughs> There's so many things. I can't learn yeah. them all, but I want to read about it before I dive in too far. Yeah.
1: But Nintendo, you know, and I'm sure other designers too, but so cleverly, again, something that had not occurred to me, just set up their initial boards in such a way that they lured you to learn about it.
3: Yeah. So in both, in both Super Mario Brothers 1, which came out in 1985, and Super Mario Brothers 3, which came out in 1988, the very first level, they're very similar, but they're designed so that you have to learn the game mechanics. Um, the, 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 ga- the The level teaches you the game mechanics. So you start... Um, with mario on the screen and there's a goomba approaching one of those little crawly mushroomy guys and you know what if he hits you then you learn that you need to jump over him or on him um then when you but if you run to him then it's going to be timed his movement and your movement are going to be timed such that there's a good chance that when you jump on him you'll actually rebound off of him and hit the uh the first little um question mark box Mm, and get your first power up um so everything about that level is is teaching you um How to jump, how to kill a Goomba, how to how to use a question mark box. Um, And then Super Mario Brothers three right after that is the famous runway where you are offered a a leaf and there are little guys with wings kind of encouraging you to think about flying. And there's coins up into the sky. And so there's enough runway and these coins leading up into the sky that you just kind of want to run and then you want to jump and you want to follow and say, hey, how do I get those coins that are too high to jump for? Right. So that so already in, in level one, it's taught right. you one of the more advanced game mechanics, which is flight.
1: And so much dopamine. Like you get the one thing oh. and then it leads to another one. It just oh, I want more Absolutely. Of this. Oh. And
3: and every element of the game is 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 like that, right? From the from the game feel to just like how it feels to play it. And that's that's the game's physics and mechanics and the controller. All the way down to the, the musical effects and Koji Kondo, the composer of uh, Mario's music and sound effects. Um, if you if you listen carefully to the sound that you get when you get a coin, it's a perfect fifth, but um, <laughs> um and in other in other things, it's an octave and there's just something very pleasing about perfect fifths and octaves for our human ears. And so even just the the pleasure of hearing a really nice little, Pavlovian bell or something like, Oh, I got a coin. I've got to get another one. Yeah. Um, and then there's a prize at the end of every level in Mario three. And there's, there's just secrets every Every time you find a secret, you get a dopamine hit. So yeah, they, the mini games there's, there's mini games in there. They just loaded that game with rewards of many kinds so that you would want to keep, keep playing forever.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very good. Uh, yeah. perfect fifth. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's the, it's the, uh, like an interval of, uh, you know, marches and triumphant music. Yes. Star Wars theme. Uh, yes. Superman
3: absolutely John it's, it's that it. same perfect fifth yeah oh, yeah um so you know
1: thinking about uh, the dopamine and the rewards and the learning and that, you mentioned your father you know using this as a way to teach you life lessons a question i had for you and i suppose you answered is uh that your father was aware of how he was using these games i know that yeah. I, tr- I try to you know be metaphorical and like with my, my kids like you know sand the floor and paint the fence and take out the trash. will teach them something. Then, "Hey, did you yeah, realize yeah. by taking out the trash, I just taught you No, yeah. they didn't want any part of it. But your dad realized yeah. he was doing this with video games?"
3: I don't know. You know, I don't know if if he was literally while we were playing saying that advice or if if I've married them in my mind. No. I know that he he very explicitly gave me that advice. And one place where I can remember really clearly hearing that advice was around my math homework. So I was terrible at math. I'm an English person. Um, and, and really early, like first grade, early, um, my dad sort of like <laughs> he made these bonus math worksheets for me to do as soon as I got home from school. Um, you can guess how that went over. I'm now an English professor and writer. I, I went so hard the other way. I was like, no, I'm really sure I need this. Thing. But but yeah, he was. And, and, you know, we played a lot of sports growing up. My brother played a lot of sports and, and we would we would play in the backyard together. And that was always the the attitude right like did you try hard did you have fun um and and you know you should never ever give up until until um you know never give up and, and always just try your best so, so that was the attitude toward report cards right, right it was like did you do your best okay well if you did your best and it wasn't good then then that's okay but you know you could always probably be doing better like hard right. trying harder or trying more of your best right. um, so it was a sneaky sneaky lesson
1: right so it's funny to say about the extra sheets. I did that with my oldest and they're now, <laughs> they now work in art, you know? so You
3: did that with math worksheets? Yes. Oh I, man. I, I, was I my wish first, I could have told
1: you. It was my first kid. You know, my youngest <laughs> now, it's a little, we're definitely a lot more laid back about the whole thing, but it was like, finish this extra 10 math problems and then you could play video games. You know, it was like that kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, I wouldn't do that. Anymore,
3: yeah. But, oh my gosh.
1: Um, <laughs> So you mentioned Starfield. It makes me think like if you were to teach or, or you know, just thinking about how your dad did this when you were four. Yeah. To teach a child, a four-year-old or a young person today, a game <laughs> with the hopes of learning life lessons, let's say, would you turn to Starfield or are you getting the Nintendo out again?
3: <laughs> I'm definitely good. I have been playing Super Mario Brothers 1 with my daughter, with my four-year-old now. <laughs> oh, no And way. we do the same thing. Yeah, she sits in my lap and we load it up and- you know, oh she's gosh. she can she can jump on the goomba. That's about all she can do. Um, but what's really cool nowadays is that they there's so many more games now that they make games for little kids. So she plays mm. the Peppa Pig game on my Xbox and it's just about making friends and visiting grandma and, and like playing with toys. And I do think that a game that's more accessible for her in that way um, gets her in the flow state. And mm. um, I don't know, just I think there's so much to be learned from games about patience and about um you know, like the developing of skill and the and the reward of of building up skill through patience and through rote repetition. Um, I think that that idea of like grinding is 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 huge, and um, I I hope that it'll you know make her a better person and and not just a weird video game, game geek like me. <laughs> Another
1: uh, English professor in yeah, your works.
3: There you go. Yeah. No, okay. someone needs to pay for my retirement. So <laughs> right. I, I I really need her to go into business or like Mm -hmm. brain surgery. I guess this means I should show her lots of poems all the time and she'll rebel the other way.
1: Well, yeah. Or Dr. Mario. That's more akin to medicine. Maybe (laughs) Yeah, there you go.
3: Yeah. With the like pills flying from the the sky. There you go.
1: (laughs) It does seem that though, there is a simplicity to older games that allow our minds to make those connections maybe more efficiently Mm -hmm. than the games do today. Like, There's a certain merit to games today. I played new games, but I don't, I've already played enough old games to maybe make those connections that I don't know that that games would enforce inf- those things as quickly, maybe because they're not like you're saying the reward and failure, et cetera, is not yeah. soon enough or quick enough.
3: Yeah, we, we've, you know, a lot of gamers today really value these these massive games, which are offering different kind of, of pleasure, right, of, yeah. of immersion in a much more realistic, huge world. Or they like these really fast moving graphics and, and photorealistic graphics. I think in the world of like indie auteur gaming, like if you look at games like Limbo or Braid or Fez, these are games that that feel very um, innovative in their in their gameplay dynamics, the way Mario did when it first came out, or the way a lot of Atari games did when they first came out. Um, and it's because you can have that, it, it's not about making it, it huge, it's about making it smart and fun and addicting, and, and it can be smaller with these auteurs. The biggest change in the game industry, of course, is that when Mario was being made by a, a group of like six people, um, that was with all of the resources of Nintendo behind it. So it was a triple A game title with all of Nintendo's power and money behind it made by six brilliant genius mm. auteurs, and made at that scale. Today, tours are funding their small, beautifully made indie game projects on, you know, Kickstarter. Right. While the big game studios are making big games um, and investing their resources, you know, they're 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 buying up all the all the genius designers and and taking them and and kind of funneling into that world of game design. So, yeah, it's a it's an industry kind of evolution, I guess.
1: Right. Yeah. Uh, thinking about uh, again talking about this concept of failure. Another surprising thing I learned in your book was this paradox of failure. Yes. It it seems based on your research that folks like to fail.
3: Yeah. So I highly recommend that book. It's called The Paradox of Failure. It's by Jesper Jewell, who's a game scholar, I think at MIT. Um, And he he calls the paradox of failure exactly that, that um, in real life, people don't like to fail. Like it doesn't feel good to mess up at work or right? Like make an yeah. error with your with your spouse or something. Mm-hmm. But that in a game, it's like a safe place to to make mistakes. And actually, not only do we want even we want to win the game, but we don't want it to be too easy if we don't make mistakes along the way of winning the game and it's too easy. It's not fun. Um, So it's like, mm-hmm. you know, the games that you throw the controller down and say, I hate this game. It's driving me crazy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's like that saying the opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. Right. So mm-hmm. like, when, you, when a game makes you really, really mad because you're invested and it's difficult, but you know that you will be able to eventually learn and beat it, that's in that sweet spot, again, the flow state. Um, and that's that's the paradox of failures that we want our games to be hard, not too hard, not impossibly hard. More than that, too, what's really interesting is when we fail, we want it to be our fault in the game. Mm-hmm. If you fail in the game and you feel like it's because the game mechanics are poorly made and it didn't register your jump or it didn't register your blaster. Right. And you're like, but I pressed it. it the game is the one who, who made me fail. That makes you hate the game in a bad way. Whereas if you're like, oh, that's on me. I didn't jump in time. We actually like that. Better, like that better. It's less frustrating. And we feel like we can go and fix it ourselves.
1: It's so funny because it's this. You know, we're talking about the paradox of failure because that idea of people generally wouldn't expect them to want to fail or right, like to fail. Right. But there seems to be other, even sort of paradoxes in there to me in the sense that I think in real life, folks quickly look for someone else to blame, you know, yes. maybe even more so yes. than ever.
3: Totally. Instead
1: of wanting to feel like they're responsible. But in the, in the video right. game world, okay, you know, maybe other things. Right.
3: And this is why, you know, I see a lot of similarities. I mean, video, video games are art. And so if you, if you compare that feeling, the paradox of failure, to the literary concept of catharsis. Like, why on a Saturday night do I want to go with my wife to see Hamlet, a play about suicide and death mm. and uh, being, you know, really lonely and sad? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a safe environment to feel things that we need to feel and, and that it's good for, for us as human beings to feel. And so I think that games in particular offer a really, really cool space. Like I've seen earlier about children to fail and have it be fun and to learn that failure. I mean, my students in college, like the biggest obstacle to their learning is that they're afraid to fail. And so games offer us that world in which it's, it's fun to fail, it's important to fail, failing makes you better, and you learn that patience has rewards.
1: Right. Now, maybe, maybe another paradox is that in your book you wrote, you, you wrote that, you wrote, I tend to be more afraid of failure than I'm confident in my ability to succeed, and this fear drives everything I do.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely the oldest daughter of an oldest daughter of an oldest daughter, right? So I have that type A perfectionist. Um, I'm also a a woman and I started in, in higher ed in academia at the age of 23. I taught my first class as a graduate student. And so I went right into grad school. I've been in school my whole life and I started teaching when I was younger than most of my students. And so I think that you can have imposter syndrome from that, from a lot of just the way society treats, you know, young women and especially in systems that are male dominated. Um, but also, I think it just it's a it's a temperamental thing that I, I'm very success driven and I find a lot of value in, in what I do and what I achieve. Um, and that can, can be really motivating and really wonderful, but also I do need that, you know, spiritual reminder that I'm not a human doing, I'm a human being. Mm -hmm. And so again, games are the, games are the kind of spiritual tool that I, that I use for that. Because if it were up to me, I'd probably just, when I got home from work, just keep working and doing more work and more work and more work. Um, and games call me to be playful. Games call me to stop working and to do something that's perfectly useless and, um, where my achievements are not as um measurable I can I can still feel like I'm achieving but it's not like I'm going to put it on my CV or something or that it's going to get me promoted right. that that's important
1: right yeah yeah <laughs> and i realize i'm making an observation that's so like you know obvious in the sense that Games are an escape where you can be uh, your other self. And yes. so in a game, it makes sense that you're like, I- I'll fail all I need to fail. Whereas in real life, you have to be a little more, you know, careful. Absolutely.
3: And and this is why the first person shooter genre is so popular. So people get worried about first person shooters, right? Like, is everyone out there just secretly wanting to hurt other people? Right. And like, mm-hmm. does everyone have these violent power fantasies? And it's not about that. You know, a, a game like a first person shooter is about confidence control. It's about power and we have so many situations in our life where we don't yeah. get to feel those ways. And, um, and so it's, it's an outlet it, to me. It's, it's a, in a lot of the research backs up. It, it's a really healthy outlet to, um to, ha- to express your negative feelings, but also to sort of like build up um, more of a reserve of resilience.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what? I play, I play Fortnite every night. I'm embarrassed. It's to
3: great. Say, yeah. Yeah. It's great game. Because
1: I'm not 15, but <laughs> I awesome do. Game. And I play with other middle-aged men. My, you know, that I met online. Mm-hmm. I've never met yeah. in person. And yeah. we, we played Battlefront for years before that, until nice. there's so many people using mods and cheats in Battlefront. Oh God. But like you're saying, the failing wasn't our lack of skill. It was the fact that they had, you know, things Ugh. that made them more powerful than we That'll could That'll just be. drive you nuts. And you only could compete by cheating as well.
3: That's not okay.
1: Which- which makes it seem to me that, uh, you know, and I know the, I don't know when this MIT study was done with regard to the paradox of failure, but I'd be curious as time goes on and maybe look, this is where I sound like an old man, newer generations mm-hmm. and, and folks to even in the real world, seem more okay with cheating because they feel like they've been robbed or they've been, uh, yeah. things are against them already. So they're evening things by cheating when in reality, no, they're trying to, you know, ultimately advance past someone who's playing fairly.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, I, I did I, I did recently hear a college aged person say, I love taking classes online because it's so much easier to cheat. Ugh, yeah. And, you know, I don't think there I don't think it's an accident that, you know, cheating in, in higher education is, is on the rise, plagiarism and, and tools like ChatGPT that make it easier, but also what's on the rise among people of college age, you know, college age generation. Is loneliness, anxiety, mm, despair, right. and so we need a sense of purpose, and that comes from working hard, being challenged, and failing. And you can't fail and be challenged and work hard if you're cheating, right? So, um, so I think it's I think it's good to to look at you know where the space for cheating can be, um, like like what's at the root of cheating, right? So is it is it laziness or is it insecurity? Is it um, being you know? so so busy and overworked that you you know or is it or is it some kind of darker like power fantasy of, of just winning at all costs right. and and it, games are a great place to, to think about that um the game that i just read about goldeneye which came out in 1997 it's a um n64 first person shooter the game developers actually built in a very key cheating dynamic which is that they allowed players to choose a character who was half the size of all the other characters it's- making him impossible to shoot and so the running joke is like, you can't choose odd job. That's cheating. Right. And yeah. so they were interested in, in friends making their own rules. Like the game has allowed you this cheating. Right. Will you in like the social dynamics experiment, make your own rules. Um, and a lot of people did. A lot of people had no odd job rules or you can't shoot someone until they've picked up a gun rules. The difference is that they were not playing online with strangers. They right. were playing on their couch with friends with a bag of Doritos. And so it's the anonymity of online gaming that I think makes cheating so widespread. Right.
1: You see golden and immediately hear the, hear the menu, menu music, you know? Dum, yes. Dum.
3: You know, that music is incredible and it, there's no reason it had to be as good as it yeah. is, but it just, <laughs> it just really, really slaps. <laughs> it
1: didn't have to yeah, be that good. Yeah. So how do you play video games today? Do you, do you actually dust off the old uh, Nintendo system and take it out or are there, is there another way that you're, you're able to uh, play these games that you
3: love? No, I just, I just wanted to shout out the, you know, the NES USB um, that you can purchase. I hope that, you know, listeners of this podcast who are super nostalgic for their nintendo 80s gaming days um might check that out because it's like 50 bucks and you can just plug it into your tv and play it has the entire nintendo game catalog on it for the nes and it's just wonderful it's just such a such a fun nostalgia toy
1: so and how does it work as far as the controller do you get a classic type it comes controller it comes
3: with a, it comes with a classic controller yeah um. so it literally just it plugs into your smart tv there's two plugs there's a power plug and a smart tv plug it's nothing like how hard it was to plug those those real <laughs> NESs into our huge tvs that we grew up with right um but yeah it's it's very easy to set up and it has the whole thing um loaded with all those nes games and it yeah, it, that, that's what I'm teaching my daughter Mario on um, okay. so that she gets the, the real experience, we're not like playing Mario three on a switch. I'm not messing around with that. We're playing it right. on the original, you know, um, as close to it as I could find. So.
1: Yeah. Whenever I want to play golden eye, I get out my, my N64. And hook it it up. doesn't
3: work without, I mean, they just released it for the switch and it yeah. does not work because it, it was really designed for that super weird three-pronged right. yes. uh, controller.
1: Yeah. And talking about growing up, obviously, uh, Super Mario Brothers 3 had a huge influence on you. And as we talk about new games versus old games, there's a point in, the, in your book where you, you know, you talk about your father and brother throughout the story, but you had mentioned that your brother seems, you know, he was only, what, four years younger than you are.
3: Yeah.
1: Has yeah. moved on to the newer games, you know. and right. to, Whereas you, you talk about a story where you and your dad are still playing Super Mario Brothers. Yeah. What was, it's only four years difference. What do you think is the difference maybe
3: i think it's because he's a boy honestly so they, I, like in mm. in boy culture i think like boy millennial culture they just are all playing call of duty and halo and all those games and when i was growing up it was still kind of weird to be a girl playing video games i talk about this in the book it was like a tomboy trait mm-hmm. luckily i think we're i think we're largely past that now but um even i mean it's, to some extent even uh, still today in in online communities with um with Call of Duty or with Halo, there's a lot of sexism and racism sure. and uh, cyberbullying and um, people saying horrible things. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think that's probably what it is, It's just that he and his buddies, that's what they did. And, and I never mm-hmm. did. I also sort of um, was on a long video game hiatus during college. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm a real like perfectionist type student, so I just didn't game much and keep up with the new games as they were coming out in the um, 2000s. And then it wasn't until like 2010 that I got into the Bethesda open world games like Skyrim and Fallout and now Starfield. I don't really like playing with strangers online. It just Mm -hmm. kind of freaks me out. So I like to just be all alone in a big, massive world with like my axe or my laser gun, just (laughs) exploring. Uh And honestly, even though they're such different graphically and in scale, the the reason I'm enjoying Starfield right now and I'm 100 percent addicted is the same reason I loved Mario three as a kid, which is exploration finding secrets, finding new things, um, seeing what's, what's on the next planet or in Mario, what's in the next level, what's in the next world. Um, so, so to me, they, you know, the impulse is still exactly the same.
1: You know, you remind me that I I think, again, think about adventure, I told you the art sort of just fueled my spirit and imagination that a box was enough. Yeah. That there is something about video games that you can't really think about when you're playing a video game. I think much like seeing a movie Mm. that you get into this hypnagogic Type state where yeah. it becomes your reality.
3: Yes, absolutely. I I mean, especially in a game like Starfield, it's really quite dangerous. W- when people ask me, like, you know, should I let my kids play video games? I'm always like, it's not the violence, honestly. I would not worry about the violence or the gore, no. It's the addiction. And so for mm. me, right now in Starfield, you know, they they give you a whole life. Like I I have a another wife in my game who's different than the <laughs> wife in my real life. I have a job. I have a house. I have. <laughs> A kid it, and and so there's this like immersiveness that's a little bit scary and and I am playing so much yeah. now. And by so much, I mean, like three hours in the evening. It's not like I, sure. I don't have too much time. i have a, a three month old baby, right? Yeah. but oh, wow, it, I am dreaming about it. i'm I'm dreaming about it at night. I, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm thinking about it while I walk around. like I should go mind that planet. Right. Um and so, yeah, you you are very immersed. um and and I think good games are designed that way for better and for worse.
1: Gosh, you remind me I have these dreams every now and then that I'm married to somebody else, you know, like an ex-girlfriend <laughs> from years ago. And I wake yeah. up feeling like I'm in love with this other person. I love my wife. I'm yeah, crazy in love with my wife. Right. I tell her about it. And it's just like, but it stays with you.
3: Oh, you should see my wife when I'm when I'm playing because she'll she'll be in the room with me. And um, and I'll I'll point to my screen and be like, hey, that's my video game wife. And she's like, huh? Yeah, she's cute. And she goes right back to just reading her book. Like, <laughs> well, good. That's a healthy relationship. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I'd be worried if she was jealous of a digital of a fictional. You know, yeah, but, fictional
1: character. Yeah. <laughs> uh, hey, uh, look, I am so pleased to be able to speak to you today and Thank learn you. about uh, more about yourself and Super Mario Brothers. Folks should definitely check out this book again. It's Other than most other video game books I've read, is that really, just like you talk about the balance and the sort of Uh, what is it? The Goldilocks zone of Super Mario Brothers 3. Your book is that Goldilocks zone too. Oh, thank you. Both historical, you know, uh, references to the game and history related to Elise Noor.
3: Thank you so much. That that really means a lot. And it was such a pleasure to chat with you and be on this wonderful show. I I really appreciate it.
1: An absolute delight to speak with Elise and and, and a pleasure to read her book. You should definitely check it out. Super Mario Brothers 3. Again, our guest, Elise Noor is the author. Uh, it's available everywhere. There's, uh, I'm sure, there's a link in our show notes here to bookshop.org, the place we like to support because it helps uh, keep your local independent bookstores in business, and it doesn't sacrifice the shopping experience either. It's, it's like, ah, uh, you know, Amazon or those other ones. And we're not paid to say that. We just really like them. Hey, next time on the show, we're going to be talking about uh, some of the controversial, interesting, scandalous uh, moments on the video. Music awards. You know, the, they used to call them the MTV Video Music Awards, I think, right? Something like that. Uh, but those were ones from the 1980s and a couple from the 1990s. All right. So I'll check that out uh, next week. And on behalf of Kat and John and myself, uh, we will talk to you next time on 1980s Now.